to NeuroPodcases, a neuroscience podcast created for medical students. We hope you enjoy listening. Hello, uh, my name is Sarah Healy and today on the episode of NeuroPodcases I'm with Dr. Smith who's going to talk to us about an approach to neurological history taking. So hi Dr. Smith. Uh, hi, sir. So, yes, I'm conscious that uh, talking about history taking in a situation where you don't have patients in front of you is a bit artificial. Um, but I think it's a useful exercise to discuss uh, principles of history taking, um, some of which are generic to medicine and some of which are specific to neurology. Uh, and then we're going to deal with some cases which illustrate what a good clerking can do. So the aims of this talk are firstly to understand how to do a clerking in patients presenting with neurological symptoms and secondly to appreciate what a well-constructed clerking can achieve in terms of diagnosis and management. Sarah, why do you think this is important for medical students and young doctors to know? Well, so... As you said, the history taking is fundamental to all branches of medicine, not just neurology, but neuro neurological symptoms do present um, a high proportion of cases in GP, in A&E. There's important emergency neurological presentations to be aware of and to understand um, the background of. So um, it's fairly fundamental, I'd say, to all, all branches of medicine that way. Uh, absolutely, Sarah. Patients with neurological symptoms account for a significant proportions of GP consultations and hospital attendances. Patients with neurological symptoms uh, often don't have a structural uh, disorder of the nervous system. Uh, and one of the main objectives of doing a good clerking is identifying those patients who can be reassured uh, and also those who need to be investigated. So. We all know what constitutes uh, a clerking, presenting complaint, past history and drug history, family history, social history, systematic inquiry. Um, but what I'll want to emphasize in this talk is the that what is absolutely essential is a detailed history of presenting complaint and that you tailor the rest of your history to that presenting complaint. Sarah, what 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 what's numbness? Uh, so numbness can mean a lot of things to lots of different people. Um, you know, some people's pins and needles might be another person's complete loss of sensation. So it, it's very subjective, and I think that's one of the tricky things in neurological history taking to pinpoint exactly what somebody's talking about when they're describing their symptoms. I mean, with respect to numbness, you've mentioned you know two sensory things: pins and needles or or loss of sensation. What else might a patient mean by numbness? So sometimes I think people can 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 blend the sensory and the motor and sometimes say something's numb when it's actually weak. Mm. Good. And what's a blackout? Well, a blackout could be a dizzy spell. It could be a stage epilepticus. It's a wide description for, for some people, I think. You don't necessarily have to lose consciousness for somebody to describe themselves as having a blackout. Yeah, so a blackout, you know, you, you, you would perhaps first think about loss of consciousness, but you could also get a blackout of, of, of other things, like, like what? Oh, well, like vision. Yes. Or, um, yeah, so a loss of vision rather than a loss of consciousness. Okay, or a loss of... 
awareness. Uh, yeah. Well, or, I suppose that's consciousness. Or even it? a loss of memory. Right. So, okay. basic, yeah. So, so what's the point that I'm making here, or that we are discussing? So, what somebody's um, vocabulary is when they're describing their symptoms can vary between patients and can vary between what a patient's telling you and what you as a clinician need to need to understand about that symptom. Yeah, so words that are used in common parlance mean different things to different people. So right at the onset of your consultation, you have to make sure you're speaking the same language as the patients. I'll often find myself saying to a patient, what do you mean by dizziness, mm -hmm. for example? So in a patient who presents with a symptom, and we're going to call this symptom X, it can be anything, there's a lot of questions you can ask about symptom X. If you're thinking about the cause of that symptom, what do you think are the two most important things you can ask? Uh, so when did it start? Would be one on my list. And then also if it's progressed or not, and if it has in what kind of time frame. Yeah, so I, I, I agree absolutely with that. So I think the two most important things are the onset and the course. So the onset refers to uh, how the symptoms start, which could be abrupt or gradual. And the course uh, is what has happened to the uh, symptom from the onset to the present point in time. And that course could be one of progressively getting worse the symptom could have come and gone and not come back again uh, or the symptom could be coming and going or intermittent and if the patient's got more than one symptom you apply the same approach uh, to each symptom get the onset and course of symptom x and then symptom y etc as you construct your detailed history of presenting complaint so can we fill in this table uh, we're, we're relating the onset and course uh, to, to different pathologies. So if something's got an, an abrupt onset and recovery, or an abrupt onset followed by gradual or no recovery, what pathology do you think that would be? So I always think vascular phenomena are the other things that come on very suddenly, and then you can have resolution, like amaurosis fugax, where yeah. you, you have some you know, a change in your vision that comes and goes, and that's a form of TIA. Or you could have a more a more persistent problem like a stroke where you have a sudden onset and then you might have some recovery over months or unfortunately some people don't have any yeah. recovery. Uh, and then we've just done this one, onset over hours or days, plateauing for days, uh, and then spontaneous improvement suggests... So inflammatory causes. Yeah. A subacute sub onset, so starting and then getting progressively worse over a period of months what does that make you think of so some kind of infiltration potentially or, or malignancy yeah and what happens if you've got a, a more insidious onset and progression over years what what pathologies do that yeah, so we see that with degenerative conditions like dementias yeah so there we go so so there we're linking uh, again onset and course to pathology sarah um when it comes to uh, past medical history, uh, I like to approach that in a couple of uh, ways. I'll, I'll start with a, the open-ended question, have you got any medical problems? And just see what, that, uh, what the patient says. I'll back that up 
uh, with asking them what medications they take and so then linking the medication to the reason or diagnosis. Um, but then I'll also want to be asking some very specific questions pertaining to the history of presenting complaint in that patient. So let's take a couple of examples. So say that um, a 65-year-old man uh, has a, an abrupt onset uh, of numbness, loss of feeling and clumsiness uh, of his right hand, um, which resolves completely within uh, 30 minutes. What, what, what would you call that? So we've got a transient neurological deficit really um, that came on suddenly and then resolved. So I think things that come to my mind are vascular things that come and go. Now, what would you call that, presentation? So I'd call that a transient ischemic attack. Yeah, or, a, or, or a TIA. TIA. So given that this man's had a TIA, what specific things about his past medical history would you want to ask him? So we want to look at his vascular risk factors, so hypertension, diabetes, family history, high cholesterol. Um, you'd want to know if he's have ever had any of these before um, that he might have dismissed, which would put his risk up further. Okay, good. Uh, and we can, we can use the same uh, thing when it comes to the other aspects of, of the history, family history, social history. Let's think about habits. So... A 28-year-old man presents to the A&E department having had a witnessed convulsive seizure. Um, what are you going to ask him about habits that might be risks for that seizure? Well, so, um, just kind of generalising, being a young man or a young person, you, you might generalise and want to ask whether there's been any uh, illicit drug use that could be a trigger as well. What, what drugs would you ask him about? So cocaine, ecstasy, um, God, I don't know enough, enough drugs like this. <laughs> what else would you so ask I, I was interested that you said, you know, being a young man, you, you would ask him about these things, uh, which leads nicely on to the situation where it's a 60-year-old woman who comes to A&E with the, uh, a witness convulsive seizure. Mm. Are you going to ask her about her drug use? I mean, you should do, yes. yes yeah. Absolutely, because... It, it you know the, the it's still a possibility that her mm. seizure was 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 drug induced with respect to examination uh, a neurologist will have in their mind uh, a, a screen a set of uh, sorry a screening examination in which they'll do some basic cranial nerve motor coordination tests and may or may not do a sensory examination and then they will add on additional things depending on the presentation. So, for example, we'll do um, an MMSE or, or a MOCA in somebody who presents with memory problems. Um, we'll do uh, a detailed sensory examination in somebody who presents with sensory symptoms or impaired balance. But you won't do those in every patient. So what we're going to do now is uh, consider what, what a good neurological clerking can do. Um, I, I like to think of it as being able to answer three questions and we're going to come to what those questions are at the end once we've looked at some cases which illustrate this point. So the first case is a, a 35 year old lady who has a six month history of episodic left sided sensory symptoms. 
which then become persistent and she can't do her housework. She's then admitted to hospital with numbness and weakness of the left arm and leg. Uh, on open inquiry, she doesn't report any medical problems, but she is taking citalopram. She's got no family history of note. On, and on systemic inquiry or systematic inquiry, she got some alternating bowel habit, which is perhaps suggestive of IBS. She's had normal investigations. And these are her examination findings. Uh, fundine cranial nerves are normal. Um, she's sitting on the bed, um, and you can with her with her, her limbs exposed, and you can see that there's no muscle wasting. Her posture is normal, but she's not moving her left-sided limbs. Muscle tone is normal. Power on the right side is completely normal. On the left side, she can't lift the leg against gravity or even move the left foot. Um, when we put her in a, in a chair, she has weakness of hip extension, uh, but not when she's when she's concentrating on that leg, but not when she's distracted. Her reflexes are symmetrical. Her plantar responses are flexor. She's got complete absence, she says, total numbness of pinprick sensation on the left side of her head, her arm, trunk and leg. Um, and when you place a, a tuning fork uh, on the left side of her sternum, she can't feel the vibration, but when you put it on the right side of her sternum, she can. Uh, and she can walk, but she does so uh, by, dr uh, by sliding her foot along the floor, almost like she's dragging it behind her. So what I want you to do now is give me a diagnosis, but more importantly, I want you to uh, identify some features that support your diagnosis. Yeah. Okay. So I think there are some positive features in this history and examination to help give us a diagnosis that we can be quite secure with. So, uh, first of all, she's a young woman. Um, her symptoms came on six months ago, and they've been but they've been getting worse. Um, and although she says she's got no medical problems, there's a suggestion of of IBS. And she's also on citalopram as well. Um, so I think all these features are quite are quite important. I think the examination really clinches things, though. So if we just look at everything that's normal, so she's got normal cranial nerves of undi. Her tone and reflexes are normal, which are quite um, hard signs in terms of um, if they're normal, it's very reassuring. And her entire right side is normal as well. Um, so all the problems are just in her left leg, which um, sounds like it's completely affected in every single um, in every single movement that she's unable to lift her leg against gravity or move her left foot, which is a bit strange anatomically, really. Um, and along with that, there's a positive Hoover sign that you described. So somebody having a, a weakness of hip extension when you're asking them to to push down into your hand, but actually that weakness not being present when you ask them to lift their other leg. It's it's a bit of a a complicated one to describe on a podcast but would be easy to, to google a hoover sign but that's quite a, a hard sign again for um for this condition and then i think another quite two, two other relatively important signs i think would be the sens sensory exam that sternal splitting of the vibration sense is is quite important because that doesn't tend to happen in any other conditions really and why, why, um, why is that so anatomically the the sternum wouldn't be 
supplied in such a way that everything splits down the midline that yeah, way. It's one bone, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. So it, it, you wouldn't get this splitting phenomenon um, in kind of any anything that can relate to an anatomical structural problem. And also the gait, the dragging of the left leg is quite atypical um, for somebody who's got a weakness because it can actually be quite effortful to drag a leg that way. And people who have a weakness tend to, you know, try, tend to accommodate and adapt in different ways to walk and, and the dragging you don't t tend to see very commonly with other causes of weakness. Yes, yeah, I agree. The, the diagnosis uh, is, is one of functional hemiparesis. Um, she, she has weakness of both the arm and the, the leg and numbness of both the arm and the leg. Um, and the reasons that support that diagnosis, uh, there are a couple of clues in the history, uh, including uh, irritable bowel syndrome, which are physical, sim real physical symptoms, but no structural cause. She's got, n she's got the weakness, but no objective motor deficit. She's got a non-anatomical sensory deficit. There is inconsistency between this bedside examination where she can't move the leg at all and yet she can stand and walk. Uh, and then she has got functional signs and, and, and neurologists who've got an interest in functional disorders will say that it's not enough to, uh, to fail to find hard neurological signs you also have to find functional signs as well. Uh, and Sarah, you quite correctly mentioned sternal splitting, which is not anatomically possible. And Hoover's sign will direct you to um, a link where you can see that being demonstrated. So Sarah, g given that this talk is for uh, medical students who um, are having a, a neurology block for the first time, why do you think uh, I've given them this case? Um, so I, I suppose aside from the learning points we discussed from it, I think it's a very common presentation. Um, functional disorders, not only just in neurology, but in, in other specialties as well, but functional neurological disorders crop up in GP, in A&E, on the ward, in the clinic. Uh, absolutely. I, I, I would reckon I would see this kind of presentation as a ward referral a couple of times a month and in almost every clinic there will be a patient with a constellation of uh, symptoms and signs which suggest a functional neurological problem. If this kind of patient is admitted to hospital, who sees them first? So the admitting doctor, so they might be the GP that sees them first, the A&E doctor, the F1 in um, AMU. Yeah, and that's absolutely the point. The point is that this is common and that when these patients come to hospital, it's a junior doctor who's assessing them in the first instance. So going back to these uh, signs, that's why I want you to be able to recognize them. So the second case uh, is a 40-year-old man who, the, who, who for about three years has been less able to tell the temperature of water with his left leg and foot as with his, the right side. Um, and he, he's noticed that, you know, when he has a shower and he's, and he's toweling down, that he's got a bit of numbness on, somewhere on the lower abdomen. Um, he never presented with that, but more recently he's been concerned that his right leg's been a bit stiff, and he's noticed 
uh, some difficulty getting out of the car and particularly running up and down stairs. So here's a man with sensory problem on the left side and some stiffness, possibly weakness on the right side. So what what other kind of questions would you want to ask him? Um, so, so I'd want to ask about bladder and bowel um, issues. I'm worried about a cord problem from what you've mentioned in the history there. Um, so in relation to cord problems, I'd want to ask about sphincter disturbance. I'd want to ask about um, any back pain or, or trauma at all. Um, I'd potentially want to ask about um, any weight loss or any suggestion of any malignancy. He's had this problem for three years now, so I don't think there's a a, a malignant, pro, you know, a, a tumour pressing on the cord. I think we'd have found out in another way by now. Unless it was but benign. Unless it was benign, but it's a possibility. Um, and I'd probably want to know if he'd had any any symptoms like this before in the past. S symptoms in the legs or symptoms somewhere else? So the reason I'm asking is I'm wondering about inflammatory disease. Mm. So you could have an inflammatory lesion that could be causing a problem like this, but you could have had another inflammatory lesion in the past that came and went. So what kind of symptoms would that cause? So that could cause pretty much anything under the under the sun neurologically, so vision loss, um, weakness of the arm or leg, uh, change in sensation to the, to the arm or leg. Good. Oh, and one other thing, just thinking about his age, and again, thinking about the onset, I'd want to know whether or not his family had ever had any problems. Um, there's hereditary spinal conditions that could be relevant okay. here as well. Okay, so excellent. You've immediately thought about the spine. Uh, he's got no problems with his arms, uh, no back pain, normal sphincter function, no history of previous problems within the nervous system, nor any family history thereof, and in fact, no medical history of note. So his symptoms are as we've previously discussed. Now, here's his examination. Fundine cranial nerves are normal. Uh, on inspection his limbs look normal. He has increased tone in the right leg with five or six beats of clonus. He is mild so you can just about overcome uh, hip and knee flexion so that's grade four plus stroke five, uh, four plus over five. Uh, reflexes are brisker on the right. The right plantar is extensor and the left is flexor. When we come to sensation He's got impaired pinprick and temperature to the umbilicus on the left, uh, an absence of vibration below the umbilicus on the right, and he makes errors of joint position sense uh, at the right great toe. Um, and when he's walking, he, there's just a, just a subtle hint of a drag or catch uh, in the right leg, but it's quite, it's quite subtle. So what I want you to do now Again, what's the diagnosis? But I want you to go back to first principles, looking at each uh, of these signs, and I can say there are some motor signs and there are some sensory signs. And I want you to uh, consider those and decide what each one means and then put it together and then tell me the diagnosis. So. So first of all, we've got uh, increased tone in the right leg. We've got some weakness. We've got brisk reflexes and an extensor plantar all in the right leg. So these are all upper motor neuron signs. 
giving me confidence that we're dealing with a problem that's somewhere between the cortex and the anterior horn cell anatomically. Okay. So Sarah, you've said the lesion is somewhere between the cortex and the anterior horn cell, but you also mentioned that the tract, which is the corticospinal tract, crosses over in the medulla. So if the lesion was between was was above the crossing over, which side would it be on? So it would be on the contralateral contra side. And so given that we're dealing with a right leg weakness, it would be on the left hemisphere. So it would be on the left hemisphere. And if it was below the decussation, it would be... On, on the right side of on, the cord. On the right side. So, okay. So the lesion is in one of those two places, although we suspect the cord, don't we? Right. Okay. So go to the sensory findings. Okay. Sure. So we've got impa impaired pinprick and temperature to the umbilicus on the left meaning that the spinothalamic tract, which moves up peripherally on the left side before decussating at the level at which it enters the cord, is affected. We also have sensory disturbance, um, giving us absent vibration sense and absent joint position sense on the right, which involves the dorsal column, which, again, once it gets its sensory stimulus peripherally, goes up into the cord, but doesn't actually decussate up, up until the medulla. So what we have is a motor deficit, a spinothalamic de deficit, and a dorsal column deficit, which all lo could localise to the right hemicord. Good. What level? So we've got a, the, one of the hardest signs, I think, in this situation is a, is a sensory level. So we've got a sensory level in both tracts to the umbilicus, which is approximately T10. Good. Okay. So yeah, so it's a right thoracic cord lesion. And, and as, as Sarah said, um, we've got the combination of ipsilateral uh, corticospinal, ipsilateral dorsal, dorsal column, and contralateral spinothalamic signs that can only be uh, a hemicord lesion. Um, okay. okay. Right, so third case. So soon after waking up one Friday morning, a 25-year-old lady realised that vision on her left side was blurred. And over the weekend, it became worse. She couldn't see colours as clearly with her left eye as with her right. And she had some pain on eye movement. Symptoms stayed about the same for two days uh, and then had improved somewhat by the time she got to the eye clinic, which was the following uh, the Friday, which was a, a week after the onset of symptoms. And on examination, her visual acuity uh, was 618 on the left, 66 on the right. Color vision was 817 on the left, 1717 on the right. Uh, her left optic disc was pale and swollen, and the right was normal. And her visual fields, uh, she had, a, she had a, a hole in the visual field on the left, which we call a, a central scotoma. A field on the right was normal. So again, I'm looking for a, a diagnosis uh, and features to support that diagnosis. Okay, so going through things again, we've got a young lady where, uh, and she's got monocular visual symptoms, so only her left eye is affected, and she's 
was aware of that as soon as it happened when she woke up with the problem. So and it came on. What does that mean then, being monocular? So it helps me think about where the problem might be. Um, it's either going to be in her eye itself, in the left optic nerve, um, but it's basically not going to be anywhere beyond the chiasm or where the optic tracts, uh, optic nerves meet. Okay. Because if anything was at that point or uh, back towards the cortex, you'd get symptoms in both eyes. Right. Okay. But um, because it's just one eye, it's either the it's anterior to the optic chiasm. Okay. It's how I describe it anatomically. Yeah. So then, in terms of the course of her symptoms, so it sounds like they came on quite suddenly got worse over two days or were static for two days and then started to improve. So that again gives me an indication of what the problem might be. Um, that kind of course sounds very inflammatory, that it, it reaches what we call a nadir or the worst point over two days before then slowly getting better. Um, so it didn't actually come on suddenly, it started and got worse. Yes. Uh, yeah. And then it plateaued and then it started to improve. Mm. Yeah. And you would associate that with an inflammatory condition. Yeah, yeah, that time course. Um, there's some other features that I think are, are give us a nice positive um, affirmation of what I'm thinking, which is the pain um, on the eye movement and then also on her assessment, the fact that she had um, loss of acuity, the, co the colour vision was affected as well and she had changes including essential scotoma and evidence of, sw of a swollen disc all these features sound to me like she's suffering from a left-sided optic, optic neuritis. Okay, so you're absolutely right, Sarah. This story is characteristic of inflammation or demyelination. So the symptoms worsening over hours or days, occasionally longer, plateauing for days, sometimes longer, and then usually with spontaneous improvement. So the neurological clerking can answer three questions. So once you've taken the history and done the examination and you're formulating the case, you have answered three questions. What, what are those three questions? So where is the lesion? You can um, anatomically get an idea of where the problem might be. And which of our, two which of our three cases was about where is the lesion? So the, the hemicord, the right thoracic cord lesion gives a nice idea of, of and of localization, but also the the optic neuritis to a degree as well, yeah, anterior yeah. to the chiasm. And what? Um, so the idea of onset and course helps us answer uh, what the lesion might be. Okay. And um, whether it's vascular, inflammatory, malignant, degenerative. And which which case dealt with that best? So again, the optic neuritis uh, case was nice for that one. Okay. And what's the What's the fact? Because I think those are the second and third questions. Oh, right, okay. We'll is, is there a lesion? Okay. Yeah. Is yeah. there a lesion? Or is, is the problem structural or functional? And, 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 and the first case was designed mm. to, to address that. So if you've taken a good history and done a good examination, you should be able to say, uh, is there a lesion? Is it a structural or a functional problem? Use your anatomical knowledge to say, to localize the lesion uh, and use the onset and course uh, to identify the pathology. Um, and when you've done that, because if you think, books will often give you lists of causes of things, a list of cause of spinal cord problems. But in the patient in front of you who's a certain demographic, age and gender, who's got a story and who's got examination findings, the the realistic differential diagnosis will be narrow 
um, and that informs your investigation and management. Uh, just to, just to summarise this talk, uh, the point I made right at the beginning is that neurological symptoms are common, history taking is the key to the diagnosis, and getting a detailed and careful history of presenting complaint uh, is uh, of utmost importance. The rest of the history, uh, you, you can ask anything you like, but you should be aiming to tailor your past medical, your social, family history to the history of presenting complaint. When you've taken your history, it almost tells you what you're likely to find on examination. Uh, and once you've done the history and the examination, you uh, can answer three questions which will inform your management. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. Look out for more podcast episodes coming out shortly.